The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. Hussein Kanji is a London-based VC, co-founder of Hoxton Ventures and previously with Axel Partners. His VC and angel investments include successful scale-ups like GoCardless, Babylon Health, and uh, Darktrace. So, uh, Hussein, welcome to the Startup Scale-Up Game Plan. Thanks for having me. Hussein, how and why did you become a VC? What, what motivated you to embark on this career rather than build your own business or invest in public companies or private equity? I don't think I ever would have been an investor. I think I would have been on the building side if it wasn't for venture. And, and venture was was accidental. I, I moved to London now about 15 years ago. And then I got a phone call from a venture fund that knew me from a past life when I was on, more on the building side. And then kind of one thing led to another. And I ended up joining the firm that was Axel and spent a number of years with them. And then I, I left to go do my own because I want, I liked, I enjoyed venture and I, I liked doing, and I thought there was a big gap in the European ecosystem for early stage investors. But I don't think it was a career by design on the on the investing side. And I have a lot of friends or hedge fund managers or on the public side. You know, I don't think I could do what they do. I'm much more of a company type person in terms of like building products or services. So you're going from the building side to building companies, building products and services. Yeah, yeah. So I was I spent most of my twenties and, and a good chunk of my thirties on the product and engineering side, you know, building stuff. And then some of them are companies and some of them are just products. Uh, and I did I've been doing that since kind of my, my teen teenage years. I joined the company when I was eighteen, so pretty early on in the history. And then I ended up switching over to the investor side. So when we last chatted, I mentioned that some of my guests were concerned about VCs and entrepreneurs obsessing about revenue growth and ignoring other key topics like validating whether or not you have true go-to-market fit and ensuring sustainable customer relationships. And your response was, I'm in the growth at all costs category. This is about hyperscale mentality. So I'm curious to hear more about your investment thesis and why you think that rapid growth should be the absolute focus for VCs. It's the nature of the capital that you're taking that you're taking. So the, the the way venture works is, you know, we we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors to generate returns. We're the most expensive form of capital that there probably is out there from a returns perspective. If you're an investor in, in lots of different things, you can you can put your money in the bank and these days kind of get negative yield, or you can put your money in the public markets and the public markets, especially in the tech public markets, have done extraordinarily well over the last uh, six months, even even despite the pandemic. And so you can get a, a pretty strong return. You know, if you're going to choose to invest into funds that invest into very early stage companies or very young, immature companies, you, you want those companies to do even better than what you can get in the public markets, which are much more robust entities, which aren't going to you know, go, go out of business and, and, and kind of generate negative losses for you in that sense. So and then that translates back to us. And then in order for us to be able to make our money, you know, we need our companies to, because most of our companies are not going to turn out to be super successful. It's just the nature of venture because, you know, not every company kind of makes it if, if it did. And someone had the formula for that, you know, we'd all kind of get a lot richer. That person would get a lot richer. So because we have losses, you, you need the, the wins in the portfolio to do really well. And, and not just really well, they have to do exceptionally well. 
So, you know, I always say if you're going to build, you know, a kind of a medium sized company and then a normal kind of scale up, not like a hyper type scale up, you know, I don't know if venture is the right kind of financing structure for, for people. You know, the best kind of financing structure is to get revenue from your customers, kind of grow things organically. If you kind of decide to take venture money, there's a bit of an implicit understanding there, which is that you have to get to kind of hyperscale. And if you look again at interesting companies in the public markets, the most interesting companies that are that are kind of the younger generation of public companies are, are growing upwards of 70% year on year in terms of growth. And so if they're growing 70% year on year or higher, then imagine how fast you have to grow as a younger company because you know growth is growth growth slows down as you get older and, and bigger as a company is just a kind of a natural thing. So I would say these days as a younger company, you probably have to be growing like 400, 500, 600% year on year to be interesting to get to those kinds of outcomes. And the goal is to get to those kinds of outcomes because when you get to those kinds of outcomes, the venture firm exits out of its position. It gen- generates those returns back to the investors, which blended with all the things that it kind of screws up with along the way because not every company succeeds leads to higher returns than when you would get in the public markets. That's just the rules of the game, right? That's the nature of the industry. So there's this there's this bargain to be had, right, with the venture fund. If you don't want to grow that fast or you don't think you can grow that fast, you shouldn't necessarily raise venture money. So when you're meeting leadership teams and, and evaluating investment opportunities, what do those startup ventures need to do or say to convince you that They've got the right mentality and the right proposition to be hyper growth. It's a few different things. So there's one dimension, which is how big is the market, right? That's the tr- total addressable market or sort you know serviceable available market kind of question. Which is you know if you're not going to be in a big market, it doesn't get interesting because again those those kind of law of large numbers catch up to you, and as you know as you get bigger and bigger, the growth slows down, and you're not in a big enough market to kind of carry you. You know, is the market growing exponentially? And notice, I'm not even talking about the company or the team right now. I'm just talking about the market because I think that's a better first order variable in many of these things. Is the market itself growing exponentially? Because if you're in a brand new sector of the economy, that's going through kind of hyper growth. That's interesting in, in, in its own right, because that carries a company up to success. And then the third thing is then, you know, is the, is the team it's almost never about motivation or the caliber of the team. It's almost always is, do they have a machine or a sales process or a sales engine to be able to scale? Is that even possible for them? You know, a lot of founders, for instance, that we see in Europe do one of two things. I mean, these two patterns are very common in, in, in the industry on this side of the pond. The founder does most of the selling himself. That is, that's great. I've seen the best founders get to the first 10 million of revenue almost through their own kind of sheer effort. And that's a wonderful accomplishment on their side. Unfortunately, it's one of these things that's not replicable and not scalable. And so it makes it very hard to invest in those companies because getting to the next 20 or the next 40 or or the next 100, which is kind of what you really need to do, one person or one person with a small team around them usually cannot do that. And you have to kind of go figure out what the next trick is going to be inside the company. And the next trick is almost very different than the first trick because you've got to then build a sales engine. And so you don't have something that's actually repeatable. So even though the top line numbers are really good, the stuff under the hood isn't as robust as it really should be. That's kind of one thing that we normally see. The other thing that we see is, you know, we see companies from usually smaller countries in Europe that go to slightly bigger countries in Europe and that's kind of their growth plan. And again, you know, the nature of these industries is you want to win large markets and, and, and you want to scale up as quickly as possible, which 
often really means you want to win America uh, or win the U.S. market. Because if you look, the U.S. market is the largest kind of technology market, maybe next to China. And China is not really an open economy for, for foreigners in that sense. So really, it's the U.S. And so why would you go from Belgium to Germany or Switzerland or you know Switzerland to the U.K. when you can go figure out how to make them make your product and service available in the U.S. and kind of win the U.S. market first and foremost? And we we don't see enough of that. And so, again, it, it turns out to be less about the motivation of the team and just kind of what is it that they've kind of built under the hood beyond the product or service on the sales side? And then what are they targeting geographically in order to scale? You're typically investing quite early in a startup's life. We're one of the first checks, if not if not sometimes the absolute first check, you know, we're the check right after the angels. So, you know, and, and we, we do both consumer and enterprise. So, you know, and, and it's, it's different for us on, on both sides. On the enterprise side, what are the three or four things that you focus on to ensure that they do indeed maintain their growth trajectory and become a, a hyperscale scale-up? Are they in an interesting market? Is the market itself growing exponentially? Do they have something that looks like the best-in-class product? Because we are very product-led in many ways. Product kind of lets you, lets, you, lets you scale up because the product and service is unloved by customers. And then do they have the beginnings of a sales engine? And are they thinking about the construction of a sales engine? So you find a lot of founders thinking about the building of the product and the building of the service, but not as much thought sometimes into the engineering that you need on the sales side, which is how are you getting leads? How is that pipeline constructed? What's the conversion cycle in that pipeline? What's the pace of that conversion cycle? Can you stack other bodies and other people around that? And you know, one of the things that money can do is they can buy staff, right? Because that's what you can use. There are only kind of two ingredients in these companies. It's largely people and capital and capital funds the, the people. But if you don't have the formula laid out on the sales side, it's really hard for that capital to be get used effectively. And so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what are the mechanics under the hood. And we're okay with the answers being, you know, we don't know just yet, but here are some interesting hypotheses as to how we're going to how we're going to do it. So we just did a cybersecurity deal that announced about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And there was a spin out from BAE. And, you know, their sales machine is not yet ready. But if you spend any amount of time with the founder, they have a pretty good set of hypotheses that they kind of want to test. And they're, and they're going to test the heck out of these things. To be able to figure out if they can if they can actually scale and 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 build a build a business around around the product and the product itself is kind of very much best in class right now. Good. So post investment with a company like that, which hasn't figured it all out on the sales process side, what direct involvement do you have as a as a VC to help them get to that hyperscale phase? We're pretty anti direct involvement uh, on the sense of our, our feeling is. Look, as a venture community, I, I think we're generally very high achieving kind of type A type people, right? You know, we did well in school, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of how you end up in this career yourself because usually you've built something of value, you know, before you've actually switched over to becoming an investor and you've done something interesting in your career. And you just don't, you know, it's not like the first job that you have in your career. Usually we're pretty driven for success, but, and there's a huge but in here. But we should be very much trained to be the dumbest people in the room. And, and, and that's very much by design, right? Because if you're writing the check and you know more about the formula than the people that you're investing in, I would really argue you're kind of doing something wrong. I mean, there's no real reward in being the smartest person in the room because you're not the person driving the company. You're the person just writing the check and trying to be a sounding board to some degree to the people driving the company. And so you want them to be like 100 times smarter, more 
capable and more driven and more competent than you. You should you should not be the bright person in the room. And most of the information that you get, you know, even if you were that bright, most of the information that you get is from the people that you're investing in. And it's almost always time delayed because you're not in the room when the decisions are getting made. So, you know, imagine trying to drive a bus from the back of the bus. You know, you could be the smartest person in the room, but again, it's really hard to tell the driver what to do. So we think that entire strategy is kind of asinine and, and makes no sense in the in the venture community. However, we're really good at asking provocative questions, and we're really good at asking kind of dumb questions as, as kind of the dumb person in the room, right? So, because you can figure out a lot of stuff just by asking pretty simple questions. Have you thought about X? Or like, why didn't you do X? Or why didn't you do Y? And then you can push a little bit from the back, right? So, if you push too much, I think you end up with the problem of a backseat driver, and that's never fun for the person who's actually driving the car. But if you're kind of the more motivational type person and kind of the encouraging type person, right, you can also get a lot out of, you know, it's kind of the coach mentality versus the backseat driver mentality. So we spend a lot of time kind of questioning and asking and then maybe sometimes pushing and encouraging. And sometimes the best times that we see is, you know, the company is scaling on its own. And we're like, well, why don't, why don't we step on the gas a little bit more, right? You know, what, what, what holds us back? If you're the person who's running the company as a CEO, what holds you back from sp- hiring five people this month as opposed to, or 10 people this month, as opposed to the two that you have in the plan. And there's almost always a reason sometimes. And sometimes the reason is, you know, can't onboard that kind of, can't onboard at that pace. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Like maybe we should go figure out how to fix the onboarding problem, because if we can figure out how to onboard at that pace, then we could probably grow a little bit faster. And maybe that will take like six months or nine months to kind of build that infrastructure layer in uh, on the onboarding side, right? It means investing in HR and the ops and processes and people. But maybe that's a gatekeeper to growth. And maybe that's not a line item in the budget that we've ever forecasted for. But you know, given what we're kind of seeing, maybe that's a worthwhile investment. Because if we do that and have that kind of building block in the company, it means that we'll be able to unlock a little bit more growth down, downstream. And that's a very worthwhile kind of investment and, and, and use of capital. And you know, if you're buried in the trenches, you might not see that. And so sometimes when someone asks the dumb question around the room, kind of sometimes the light bulb also goes off on your side as the person running the company saying, hey, that's a that's actually a pretty good idea. And sometimes, you know, the answer is, well, I haven't thought about it, right? I'm kind of building to my budget and I'm I'm like, you know, hundred percent over plan right now. So I'm smashing my budget. Why should I triple down uh, versus double down? And again, sometimes the answer is we can't triple down, right? You know, if we do that, a whole bunch of other things kind of break. But sometimes the answer is we actually can. And like, I never thought about it that way because, you know, I've, um, I'm doing so well already. You know, I have no one's actually pushed me to think about it that way. And so those are the really productive type conversations. And they're, they're, they're not like deep, insightful, like super smart. You have to be like incredibly clever type conversations. They're just asking these like pretty basic type questions to figure out actually what's going on in the business. And is the person, who's kind of running it being as aggressive as they probably should be, or are they holding back a little bit because, because they have some genuine fears and concerns uh, about what happens if they go too quickly, too fast. Let me ask you another dumb question. I think, I think you make a good podcast host with all of <laughs> your questioning techniques. What are the mistakes that you see European startups and scale-ups making time and time again that restricts their ability to to match the pace of, of growth of their peers in the states. We very rarely come across startups because we're it's it's easy we're able to filter this kind of stuff out just through kind of talking to people and kind of having an understanding of the industry. We very rarely come across startups that are not best in class on the product that they're building. 
if they were not blessed in class, they usually don't get money. So, so there's usually something significant or disruptive or special about what it is that they're building and intriguing about why they're what they're building when they get kind of their venture check. And it's not just true of us. I think it's true of a lot of other, the other venture firms. So there are companies that kind of end up falling behind on product, but you rarely see that as a hindrance to growth. You almost always see the opposite problem not on the other side of the table, which is on the sales engineering side. And it's almost always, can you build a really good sales machine that, that can scale? And I think as a, as a CEO, especially someone who's kind of come from a product and engineering culture, you have to think about it like an engineering problem. And there's some inputs and there's some outputs and you want really, you really high levels of output that are repeatable and scalable and you have to kind of build the process. And there's no one formula kind of fits all. There's some guidebooks for how to do it. But there is no one formula if it's all, you know, is it going to be content marketing led? Is it going to be BDR led? Is it going to be sales rep led? And it kind of depends on the problem and service that it is that you're building. But you have to go invest into that problem and go figure out how to be able to solve it and, and, and to tackle it. And that's one thing that we don't see a lot of European companies, unfortunately, kind of really figure out. And then the natural consequence of that is they plateau. So they, they, you know, very few of these kind of go the wrong way. But you know, they get to the first five million of revenue, they get to the ten million of revenue, and they get to the twenty million or maybe the forty million, and then they start slowing down dramatically on the growth because the machine is not scalable enough to take them to a hundred million or two hundred million or four hundred million of revenue. And the only real two companies in kind of the last few years that have kind of broken through. Are one of ours, which is Dark Trace and UiPath, which sadly is not one of ours. We turned that one down, which is dumb on our decision in the early days. Those are the only two kind of breakout ones. And the characteristics that we've seen of companies that have scaled tend to do really two things. They they tend to go into the US much more aggressively. Both Dark Trace and UiPath went into the US market, and the US is a big portion of, of both of those companies' revenue. The second thing is they figure out how to hire the sales talent. And and the gating factor, I think, more than anything, is that second one, which is hiring. There are just not that many people in enterprise software in Europe who've kind of built a, a business to any kind of scale. And there are lots of American companies that have come across to Europe and have scaled up Workday, MuleSoft, I mean, they're like you know, Oracle, Microsoft, et cetera. But if you then go look under the hood at the salespeople in Europe, They've never been in the trenches in terms of building kind of the marketing pitch that you kind of need in those early days. They, they kind of get the marketing handed to them. The playbook is handed to them. The infrastructure in the company on the account management side, et cetera, is almost always baked. And a lot of these folks would pride themselves on being really effective salespeople. But I would also argue they're also really effective order takers because the market has already kind of been baked by the time they're up and running in the mar- in, in the industry. And you know you can go into the door and sell hundreds of licenses of Microsoft or Oracle, but you do have to kind of really understand that pretty much anyone can be in that seat that's competent and probably be able to replicate what you're doing. There's not that much. There's not that much that's special or novel to selling something that's a well-established brand in the industry with all of the kind of air cover that you need. It's a very different set of conditions in, in the startup world, where you know the companies are just tiny. And you need every special trick in the book. And there's just not that many sales, there's just not that many sales executives, sales managers, you know, sales reps who've kind of figured that stuff out in Europe that you can hire from. And, and that's very different than in California, where you have generation after generation of you know of enterprise software company that's kind of grown up and, and you can recruit that kind of talent. And that talent's been there from kind of the early days when the company's like 10 people or 20 people and then kind of watched it mature into an organization that's, you know, several hundred people. That level of talent and sophistication 
is sadly lacking in Europe and, and it cripples people's ability to, to grow. And so one of the pieces of advice that we often give our founders is, you know, because of those set of circumstances, and we'd love for those circumstances to change. We don't think this is endemic and this has to be permanent, but the reality on the ground is that's kind of the conditions on the ground today. So one one strategy around that is don't focus on Europe, you know, go build your team in America, uh, especially in the sales and marketing and go to marketing down. You know, if the conditions on the ground aren't, if the soil's not ready just yet, why bother killing yourself trying to figure out how to, how to get the soil up and running? Cause you're wasting precious time. Just go to where the soil is actually pretty fertile, go build it up there. And eventually, you know, people kind of move back to Europe and the whole system kind of gets better and better with each generation. But, you know, be, Hyper pragmatic and focus on where you think you can actually scale. I agree with you that there's this dearth of talent here in uh, in Europe in terms of true scale up sales and marketing experience. One way of tackling that is to relocate people from the states, at least temporarily, a few quarters, maybe even for a year. Is that an approach that you've recommended to your portfolio companies? Yeah, that, that's the other way to do it. And I think the challenge there is most good people or executives will want to, they'll want kind of, again, two things in, in the career. They, they want to not take the early stage risk because their career is too valuable. So getting them to relocate, you almost get the negative signal, which is, you know, is the person actually extremely good and motivated to, to come across or is it because they're taking on risk that they don't normally need to bear? And they, they may not be actually as good because that's the reason why they're motivated to kind of take that risk. So, so you have this like kind of moral hazard type problem. And then the second problem, which is I think more material, is if someone actually does make that trade, given the nature of most early stage businesses is they don't succeed. They usually, you know, in the Valley, if you're a really great kind of sales manager, sales director, sales VP, and it doesn't work out and you're, you know, you join this like young fledgling company that's backed by Sequoia and Dreesen Horowitz, you know, and it doesn't work out, but it wasn't your fault. It was, you know, maybe the product wasn't ready or the market wasn't ready, et cetera, et cetera. You can go find another gig really easily because there's a hundred other companies that would love to hire you. You know, you go transplant your family and your career over to a new geography and you're good. You're going to be asking the question is if I flunk out of X, you know, what are the five other X's that I can kind of join? And weirdly enough, you know, really exceptional people won't make that trade, right? Because it's just too much career risk for them. So it's, it's really hard to convince these people. Now, as the company gets more and more mature and becomes more and more well-known, it gets easier and easier to recruit those folks because, you know, the failure case for those is much lower. So the risk that they're bearing is much lower. So it's easier for them to kind of make the, the shift over to a company that might be more unknown in Europe, but is actually, you know, showing some real signs of scaling. So if you can get it, it's great, but it's not really a gimme for all those conditions that I just outlined where it's you know super easy for someone to kind of move across uh, in those early days. These are hard problems and these are people problems at the end of the day. They're not like technology problems. They're not like engineering problems. They're not like even capital problems because you can go raise to kind of solve for all these kinds of things. You know, these are like some structural people type stuff. And the there are no real easy answers for this. So, sometimes we end up calling down our network and trying to convince people to join that we know. And even that's, you know, even that's a bit of a tall order and a hard sale. Let's talk about pivots for a few moments. Have any of your portfolio companies pivoted effectively and have others tried but failed to pivot? Yeah, I'm trying to think. So the one pivot that we had in our fund is probably the worst company that we have in our fund where the founder was trying to build something that was kind of a next generation email software product. 
it was really interesting. I mean, kind of directionally where superhuman kind of ended up and, you know, there's been a bunch of innovation in recent years on the, on the email front. And these guys were ahead. They couldn't build it. It was too hard. Slack also took off around the same time. And so I have this theory that maybe that caused a little bit of insecurity because it's much harder to compete against, you know, this magical beast that's growing exponentially, even if you're doing something that's not really one-to-one competitive with those guys. And so they did pivot and they pivoted into the crypto world. And so they did an ICO and, and the founder since left and is doing some kind of new next generation token type infrastructure. And I'm not so sure that's a necessarily good pivot. I don't think anyone else in our there was one other pivot that we had early on, but it wasn't in our fund. It was it was a company that we hadn't invested in. And they were doing kind of interesting kind of like spectrometry information paired up with drones to help analyze crops on farms. So a bit of an enterprise software company in the sense that they were selling kind of enterprise grade stuff, but more a farming analytics company than anything else. And their initial product was uh, was kind of like a tricorder, like like a Star Trek type tricorder that kind of held on your hand or put around your neck, and you kind of walked up and down the crops. And they they were targeting the the wine industry and the grape industry to to help you know help those folks. And they found out that the the wine industry really didn't care about next generation technology. It was such a hobby and an artisanal craft that getting extra yield, even though it made a lot of sense, wasn't they weren't just motivated by that. So it was hard. Even if they could show that they could improve performance, no one really cared. So they they pivoted and they became much more of a drone company and they started doing this for kind of soybeans and corn and and kind of mass mass scale crops. And that's when we ended up investing in them and have since been acquired by another ag tech company. But their pivot happened before we had invested in. I don't think we've had anything in our fund that's really pivoted from the time they took our money. It's quite unusual to come across a VC in European tech who's, who's not experienced a few pivots. The second fund is a little bit too new and the, com- the companies are too new. We're like 20 companies into the second fund, but it's just they're too, you know, they're, they're just too young to, to have any kind of intel. But the first fund, you know, was 17 companies, you know, three of them broke out to be kind of multi-billion dollar type companies. Six of them got acquired. So I guess, you know, those are the six that would probably be the most likely to to have pivoted. Our, our solution instead of to the pivoting was, you know, they, they ended up finding a home and kind of, you know, ended up being, they exited out uh, and they made money um, on the whole. So that's, that's what happened, I think, on that part. And then we have a few in the, a few in the middle that are scaling. So another three that are not quite the multi-billion, but they're on that trajectory. And then a handful that are still too early to tell. And then maybe one or two that are, probably aren't going to go anywhere, but I don't think they're going to pivot. I think they're just going to end up kind of, again, getting acquired. So I guess we've been less, the companies haven't gone down the pivot route. The companies have gone down the, you know, they get acquired. Got it. Can you name one tech entrepreneur and one tech VC who've really inspired you? That's a good one. And on the venture side, I guess it kind of depends. I mean, one of the things that I lament is it's it's really hard on the venture side, especially when you go off. I, I actually really miss being inside of a bigger fund for this reason, is you get to collaborate with people who are far more experienced than you. Like you can be kind of the young Turk in the shop, but you know, benefit from all the wisdom that's kind of collectively around the firm. And that, that was certainly true in the Axel days and everything from the folks in the US who kind of founded the firm, you know, so the author Patterson's and the Jim Schwartz's down to the, you know, the Jim Briars's of the world. 
there was kind of wisdom in the shop that, that was useful. And when you, when you were stumped on something, you could kind of turn to, you know, folks, they weren't really all that old, but you know, they were, they were, they were far more experienced in the industry than, than you were to kind of get some, get some counsel when you're out on your own, you don't have that luxury, unfortunately. So CEOs often use CEO coaches and, and have mentors uh, around them or advisors around them. I, I wish, I wish I, as a venture who, who person, do you turn to support and mentoring. There are not that many people. Uh, there, there <laughs> really aren't, right? Like I, I kind of wish I had a big brother sometimes to turn to in this industry. It's, it's, it's actually a bit of a lonely profession in, in this. It's one of the reasons why I think firms are better off when they have like a few more people. We're, we're really small, right? We're a three-person organization and we're kind of all roughly around the same age. So we don't have the, you know, the experiences from the past generation or the past successes to kind of coach. Now, eventually we'll end up with younger people because, you know, we'll, we'll grow as a firm as well. But, but we, we struggle with this. We don't really, we don't really have that person to kind of turn to. There, there are lots of like phenomenal venture people, but the, the challenge is anyone who's kind of a practitioner who's on the outside is both a collaborator and a mentor as well as a competitor. And so it's really hard to be truly transparent with someone and, and kind of have the coach, you know, co- you know, co- coach player type relationship with someone on the outside. It's much easier to do with someone on the inside, or it's really easy to do with someone who's kind of emeritus who's kind of retired from the industry. And, you know, a lot of the folks who I still know are still very much active in the industry. There's a lot of legs in this industry and the, you know, the, the industry's grown on the tech CEO side. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, I didn't, and all the companies that I did were pretty small and they got acquired much earlier in their life. So they never kind of hit that, the, the multi-billion dollar type scale. And then when I was, I spent a few years at Microsoft and I would love to say, you know, like I got a chance to work, you know, very closely with Bill, but he was in the back end of his career. He left a couple of years in. And so there weren't that many technology leaders that kind of I've had a chance to work with that are kind of like household type names who, who've done really well. Now, I, I ended up working with one guy who's, who was pretty influential. There were like two CEOs that were actually pretty influential. One I almost started a company with. He was a founder of a software company that Amazon bought in 1998. It was one of the first search engines that, that was out there that was kind of, this is all pre-Google, et cetera. And Amazon bought it to kind of fix its own search. And, you know, he spent a number of years at Amazon, then went off and did something like, you know, 10 other companies with his career. So he's been a great sounding board for me when I'm looking at stuff. And, and, and you know, because you know, he's been in the trenches as an entrepreneur far longer than I have. And we're pretty, you know, good, good kind of friends at this point. And then one of my old bosses ended up becoming the CTO at Yahoo. And, and you know, when, when, whenever it needs it, he's weirdly enough, he's very much of a CEO who kind of turned into a CTO, but whatever, you know, there's some like, you know, interesting science type stuff or interesting technology type stuff. He's one of the people I kind of turn to most of the people that I've worked with in my career, I'm still pretty close to And You know, the nice thing about venture is it's one of these, one of these businesses where you're very much, your, your network really does kind of matter and preserving and maintaining and, you know, being helpful to those kinds of relationships matters. So pretty much everybody in the career from like the, you know, from age of 17 or 18, when I, when I first started working in this stuff uh, to today, I'm still kind of in regular enough contact with um, it's a much more extended circle than kind of one, one inspirational or two inspirational leaders. Sounds like there's an opportunity to set up a kind of Kaufman Fellows mentoring forum, but for more experienced VCs and maybe get you introduced to, to non-competitive VCs, VCs who are investing in environmental tech or healthcare or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Kaufman would have been great. I mean, I 
think I talked about it once about applying and I got rejected. So I got rejected from YPO. Oh, wow. I got rejected from YPO as well. You know, it's interesting, like places and, and clubs, which, you know, or organizations, which are really good at kind of mentoring youth and, and kind of, you know, young up and coming people. I think both YPO and Kaufman are like this, don't really want to have me. So, you know, <laughs> there's not much, there's not much I can do in terms of seeking out mentorship in those communities. They regard you as over the hill, but uh, sounds to me as if you still got plenty of years of successful investment ahead of you. Yeah, YPO is like is an interesting one. I mean, a lot of folks told me to apply to it, and there was someone within YPO who told me to kind of do it, and then then they ended up rejecting me on a technicality because at the time our fund didn't have more than 100 million of AUM, and that was kind of their minimum bar. So here you were being encouraged to write this application, kind of saying, "Don't worry about it. Like you kind of belong in this club," and then you get rejected on this technicality. So very clear, like they didn't really want me in the club, or someone <laughs> in the club didn't want me in the club. And, you know, Kaufman, Kaufman was kind of the same. So um, it is what it is, right? Talking about being rejected. So who are the businesses that you've rejected? You mentioned UiPath earlier on. Who are, the, who are the companies that you had the chance to invest in? And for whatever reason, you decided to skip. And now looking back on that, you really wish you had you had invested. The two big ones that were kind of, you know, you know, pretty damning, I guess, for our fund. And our, our fund does well in terms of returns. So, you know, we're we're one of the better performing funds, which is which is nice and helps to have three unicorns in, in, in one fund. But you know, we we out of that same fund, we turned down UiPath. We didn't think what they had was novel enough, which, you know, in hindsight is really dumb in terms of kind of our judgment. And and at the time they weren't scaling just yet. They were still in that kind of very flat part of the curve, but they were just starting to get the sales machine going. What we should have done is probably stayed in touch with them for another couple of months, maybe three months, and because it wasn't very long. It was within six months where the machine really started working. And then, you know, the part that hurts the most, it's the old firm that ended up investing in them, and, and they're gonna they're gonna benefit the most. So, so you you not only turn down something, but you know, it's like your old shop that ends up doing it and, and kind of capturing most of the upside. So it's great for them. I mean, I think it's a home run type investment for them. But uh, but I wish we were able to do it as well. So that was one, and, and then um, and then Monzo was the other one. Uh, and you know, the 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 jury's kind of still out on kind of the Monzo business model. But you know, the nature of venture is you don't get any points by being on the sidelines, right? So the worst that happens, and in Monza, I think it was about a million quid that we would have invested. The worst that happens is you would have lost a million, right? And, but the payoffs are so asymmetric. You kind of want the call option in your portfolio if the business has any kind of chance of, of succeeding. And we knew Tom was great. We knew the mission for Monza was interesting. We knew it was a new market because digital banking was kind of had, had been almost kind of disrupted by the regulator because it made the thresholds for for opening up a, a, a next generation bank so much lower in the UK. You know, where we were stuck on was it was very UK centric versus global centric. And so our pattern was find businesses that go global versus stay in a country. And then the other question we were stumped on was like, how are you going to do customer acquisition? And how are people going to find out? That Monzo exists, and, and and more importantly, then go off and sign up for it, and then put their you know deposits into Monzo. And the answer was like, trust us, we can figure this out. And that wasn't kind of good enough for us uh, in those early days. And in hindsight, we probably should have written the check. And then what else did we turn down? We turned down Magic Pony because we weren't so convinced that was going to turn out to be a billion dollar company. And you know, it didn't turn out to be a billion dollar company, but would have paid back the entire fund in one year if we had written the check, and it would have been a small check. So that was kind of that was kind of dumb. We turned down Raisin, which at the time is called something else because we're afraid of regulatory pressure there, which is it basically allows you to deposit 
basically takes German deposits and puts puts them into kind of almost like Eastern European kind of it gets Eastern European interest rates with German depository insurance. So we thought that was great until the regulator kind of woke up to the fact that it's actually really hard for the regulator to do anything because of the nature of the EU. So, you know, I don't think that's going away and that that business is actually scaled considerably. We turned down Zenly. Uh, we really like the founders of Zenly. And again, we thought that wasn't going to turn out to be a, a multi-billion dollar type business. We thought it would be an acquisition. And lo and behold, two years later, it got acquired by Snapchat for 250 million bucks. So again, would have paid out the fund in kind of multiples had we had we done it, and we went back and forth on it for for summer. It was uh, we had an intern that summer who was very bullish on it. He's now a General Atlantic investing. I think he's going to have a pretty bright career ahead of him because he had good instincts even from from back then. And we weren't convinced, I think, as a partnership to really write that check because of the fact that we thought it would turn into an acquisition. So I think we've learned a little bit. You know, sometimes we have to be a little bit looser and more open-minded about some of these kinds of things. And I, I think the challenge for us is our first fund was so small that we were we were pretty careful about how we were spending it. And we really wanted to win in a big way. And we did do that, but we also then left opportunity on the sides. And that, that's a bit of a trade-off on our side. Well, hopefully, won't be so many situations like that with fund, uh, fund two. In terms of the situation we're seeing in the world, in 2020. Has your investment thesis changed at all as a result of the pandemic, or are you pretty much sticking to your original investment thesis? We're kind of the same. I mean, I think we're much more cognizant of companies have to be funded until probably 2022. Uh, So we think 2020 is a bit of a wash year and 2021 might also be that way. Uh, It's turning out not to be that case. A bunch of our companies which are you know, we funded them in kind of you know 2019, and they've had really good kind of strong up rounds in, in 2020, which we we've been surprised by. And the companies are doing really well, so it's probably not that surprising. But you know, you always end up worrying that the rest of the world kind of goes pause. So you want to make sure your companies, you know, if that happens, are, are perfectly safe. So you want to be super conservative on these kinds of things. And then you know, we would argue that a lot of companies are still scaling or can still scale. I mean, they have to go figure out how to do things a little bit differently. But in some of these markets, so we would, like I said, a cybersecurity business. And I don't think cybersecurity gets, I mean, the nature of the vectors of the attack change if you're working from home. But I don't think, I don't think the pace of attacks is diminishing. In fact, I think it's actually increasing. So, you know, there's a need for next generation infrastructure in that space. We've done a few more science oriented projects. Uh, we, we're doing a lot more deep tech investing than we used to in the past. You know, some of those things are potentially really interesting, really novel. We're looking at a at a protein a proteinomics company right now, and you know, if the software works the way it does, it could have pretty significant impact on on lots of different industries, including pharma. And so, we're probably you know we we take this very ten year type view, right? So our our view and our hope is that this pandemic will get controlled. It probably won't get controlled in the next like six months, is is my guess, but it probably will get controlled within the next decade. And so there's still going to be opportunity. So we're we're still pretty we're still pretty bullish and optimistic. And we've done six since the beginning of the year, which is a fairly decent. It's a pretty high pace for us actually. Within the next decade or within the next 12 months in terms of controlling coronavirus, hopefully within the next 12, 18 months, I wouldn't want it to be persisting aggressively into 2022, that's for sure. Yeah, I have a feeling we're probably going to get it under control in 21 sometime, but I, I, I don't. it's not going to be 20 and I don't think it's going to be the first half of 21. Now, I think we're going to go through a wave two and another lockdown release here in the UK. I tend to agree. Awesome. Well. 
Hussein, it's been fabulous having you on today's show. You accompanied by some tweets tweeting birds in the background. I wonder if that was the sort of environment that um, inspired the folks at Twitter. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 